Hello, welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm Brendan O'Leary, along with my co-host Rob McLeod. We interviewed Peter Murray of Ubiquity University. Ubiquity is a university that offers its students a spectrum of programs that delve into integral aspects of personal and professional development, including holistic leadership and sustainable business. Students can explore their own pathways designed to activate their head, heart and hands, and the university fosters an approach to education that reflects a commitment to the transformative power of education. Ubiquity has formed strategic partnerships globally to allow their students to connect with like-minded organizations and businesses. We delve into some of the history and philosophy of the university with their Chief Innovation Officer, Peter Merry. All right, so we're delighted today to be joined by Peter Merry. Peter, very interested to talk to you about Ubiquity University, your role in it, and a little bit about the accreditation process, in particular with this kind of counselor, student-centered approach to education, which you've managed to integrate well into the post-secondary world. So welcome, and maybe just a little bit about uh, who you are and what you're up to or what you have been up to. Oh, thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, yeah, good to be here, and uh, always happy to talk about Ubiquity and our exploits to try to create something that's really relevant to the world today me yeah um well i'm currently the, i was a co-founder of ubiquity and i uh, was part of the leadership team i've always been part of the leadership team but was kind of at the forefront in the early years and then stepped out to look more at the platform and the product side of it and then about 18 months ago um stepped back back in to lead the team in an important pivot for the organization that i can talk about later my background's really in leadership and organizational development, uh, very much from an integral perspective. And then um, more recently, integrating the whole consciousness side of things more explicitly into the work that we're doing, including the development of what I now call consciousness technologies, so technologies that interact with our intentions. But that's probably for another day. <laughs> You've got my interest peaked there, but can then we talk about the the university in general, because my understanding is the history of the university, it maybe had like a previous iteration or something, and then you've brought it into sort of a new a new form, if I understood correctly. Yeah, I mean, if we trace it all the way back, it started as the University for Creation Spirituality that Matthew Fox uh, set up. Matthew was a, a priest in the Catholic Church, but um, decided that he didn't believe in original sin, that we were all born sinners but believed in original blessing, which is what he called the title of his very popular book. So was uh, kicked out of the Catholic Church, of course, uh, <laughs> for that heresy, and set up what this university with a campus in California to, to educate people to become ministers in that tradition, in the tradition of original blessing or creation spirituality, as he calls it. And in the US, you have a very popular, well, a relatively popular degree called a doctor of ministry, a demon. And that's what he was running there a com with a combination of a kind of knowledge-based learning and very much a creative process from the students. Um, and unfortunately, they weren't able to make it work 
financially. And at that point, somebody who was on their team just suggested to bring in Jim Garrison. Uh, Jim saw the opportunity and the possibilities of taking that pedagogy and doing it in a slightly different way. So he came in and um, rebranded UCS uh, Wisdom University, um, sold the campus in California, and then said, well, the earth will be our campus, and started holding courses in different kind of sacred sites, really, and and, uh, energetic places around the planet. And so for a number of years, Wisdom School ran as a small graduate school based in California, but with events at many different locations. And there was a few hundred students went through went through Wisdom University and he extended it beyond just the DMIN into PhD and master's programs as well. And it was mainly, I'd say, baby boomers who'd had a bit of a career, wanted to go deeper into a particular topic and liked the idea of doing that in the context of an academic program with the discipline and also the community and the structure that it offers. And of course, the possibility to to write their thesis or dissertation so to really go deep into a particular topic and then around so I I ended up signing up to do my PhD at Wisdom University and about three years into uh, longer than that towards the end of my PhD which I spent seven years over I just spent a morning a week working on it basically and then it was done um towards the end of that process the um the idea emerged in around t- 2012 when all the MOOCs were coming out, the massive open online courses, all of those platforms and things, to see if we could scale what we were doing at Wisdom University by taking it online and making it accessible globally. So that uh, is what became Ubiquity University. The name emerged from our first chief marketing officer who was on a, a walk on the beach and just we were puzzling over the name and he just looked out at the ocean and said, what should we call this? And got an instant answer, ubiquity uh, universities. So all of us kind of, oh, what does that mean? Oh, okay, everywhere at the same time. So that kind of made sense. And so from really 2012, we started developing ubiquity and Wisdom University became the Wisdom School in Ubiquity, which was set up as the very first legal benefit corporation in the education sector in California. Um, which meant that we uh, can put our mission first and not the the short-term interest of the shareholders. But it also meant we could raise money as a corporation, so as a benefit corporation rather than a not-for-profit, which is what which is what Wisdom University was. And I guess in the context, what happened around 2012, there was an IBM report. They do these every two years called the CEO study, and they look they talk to 1,700 CEOs, um, but also tens of thousands of, of students. And the theme that came out, the one word that they distilled out of this interview with the CEOs was the word hypercomplexity, which was telling me that basically these leaders don't know how to navigate the world today because they had to come up with a word that was even more complex than just complexity um, to describe it. And indeed, they were saying that they're not getting from the business schools the qualities in the people they need to be effective in this kind of very fast changing complex reality. And most of the qualities that they named were things like we now call the 21st century skills like uh, communication, collaboration, creativity, all of the things that require personal development and that aren't usually included in a standard MBA program. So we could see there was both a need in the market for it, but it also fitted very much what we were sensing was the need in the world at this time for more kind of development of the inner capacities and qualities in people 
to be able to be resilient and successfully navigate times that we're in and fitted very well with the wisdom school tradition that had been developed as wisdom university so we started there we started building an online learning system went through a few iterations built a uh, a platform a community platform that came out of um, something that had been developed here in the netherlands uh, for the business sector actually for the uh, entrepreneurial sector um, we were able to get a fork of that code and very quickly activate uh, a social learning platform that's like a kind of Facebook for change makers, as I think about it. But then we don't steal the data and you know bombard you with advertisements and things. And there's now about 21,000 people on that platform and 1,900 organizations, all of whom are aligned around making a positive difference in the world and most of whom understand the importance of personal development as part of that. So that means people in the community know that the other people who are there share you know similar values to them. It's free to join the community. We've opened that up. Um, different organizations have groups and things on it. We use the platform for groups during coursework. Um, people in similar degree streams uh, have a community there. So it, that was really important because as we looked at the MOOCs and the big drop-off rate, and if you remember early on, like only 5% or so of people actually complete those programs. And the research was showing that was because of the lack of human interaction. So that they weren't meeting other people, that there wasn't any kind of stewardship of them during the learning process. And so having community as a key part of the learning um, was important. So as well as having that platform, we, you know, we have regular community calls with the students and things so that they feel that connection and that sense of belonging, as well as having a couple of in-person events every year as well. So we every summer we go to Chartres, um, where we do our annual mystery school. Each year we work through one of the seven liberal arts, and it's the place that a thousand years ago the uh, Chartrean masters were teaching the liberal arts in, and we teach in the same space that they were teaching. Um, we get access to the cathedral one evening to be able to walk the labyrinth in candlelight and medieval music. So it's always a massively transformative experience, but it means that people get to meet in person as well. And for the last three years, we've also run an in-person event in the UK, more our winter event in November on science and consciousness, where we bring together um, scientists and researchers in the field of consciousness and consciousness practitioners and look at what they can um, discover together. So the, so we, we try to have a couple of in-person events as well um, for the students and the faculty to actually meet each other. So, yeah, so our mission really you know, is to is to equip people with the mindset, tool set, skill set to make a positive difference in the world. And knowing that the fundamental nature of the change that needs to happen is one at the consciousness level, where we need to remember the nature of our interconnectedness with each other, heal the separation that we've created with the earth, with the feminine, with the body. And, and when we do that, that also enables us to get access to the more the subtle information fields where we can work more intuitively with the natural intelligence and source the solutions or the interventions that come by definition from a place of wholeness rather than from a place of separation if you were just to think them up with your rational mind. So that's what we've really focused ubiquity on the last few years is, is really enabling people to go deep, to go far, as we say now. In, in if we're going to make the kind of impact that we need uh, on the planet at this time, it's got to come from a 
a very different space of consciousness than, let's say, Western civilization is currently grounded in. And there are many different pathways to that. So we've been working with lots of different partners to, to, to create degree programs that are based on the learning programs that they've developed, um, be it more transpersonal psychology focused, uh, be it our own wisdom studies degree. We have um, two to three psychedelics programs, one based on Stan Groff's work, um, but also some more sustainability-driven ones, say with Gaia education, and then a couple on conscious business, uh, for example. So what we're trying to do is is find a way to honor the kind of learning that is really needed at this time, enabling people who are taking really great learning programs with other partners to be able to take that content and port it into a master's or a PhD program with us. So they get that opportunity to go deep through their thesis or their PhD dissertation and produce a piece of work that people can trust. Because I think one of the key things at the moment is there's so much information out there. Nobody knows what's true, inverted commas, or what they can trust. And if you've done a proper piece of academic work, then you've done your research. You can back it all up. And at Ubiquity, we also insist that you make the subjective part of that journey explicit so that people, as they're reading it, know that you are aware of your own inner process, your own lenses, your own journey, as you try to produce something, a piece of work like this in the world. Um, and of course, it helps you as an individual to locate yourself in relationship to the topic and create a foundation for you to then go on and take your work into the world. So that's kind of where we've landed at the moment, is trying to lift the field of all these different content providers who have great content that is really worthy of a graduate degree and enabling their learners to go on and get that degree um, through doing their thesis or dissertation at Ubiquity. You've clearly had to t speak about this a lot. You've dis distilled multiple conversation threads down into one there, Peter, and there's so many places to go. That's amazing, that journey, Peter. And from a place where the school was essentially a pushback against conservative religious practices to a bigger pushback against practices that are hurting our civilization and our inner kind of journeys. And I think that that personal development thing that came up multiple times in your kind of description there is key to kind of a lot of the stuff we talk about in our podcast. How do you kind of go about like fostering that in, in your students and the kind of people you work with? How does Ubiquity put that personal development kind of front and center? Well, I mean, it's really the, the the theme of all of the degree programs. So we, I think we, for a while, when the whole sustainability thing kind of was hot, like sustainable development goals and all of that, we were doing, uh, had a number of programs focused on that more. But then I think on reflection, realized, well, there's loads of people doing the kind of exterior work around sustainability. And what we really needed to do was focus on the foundation of the interior qualities that people needed to develop that would enable them to come up with solutions and interventions that would be uh, of a high quality in whatever context they were going into and that were most aligned as possible with the life process itself. I mean, it's not, it's not like a, an add-on in a way. So there's not something we do to foster that it's the foundation of everything we do so if you look at you know any of the programs that are on our website now any of the degree programs they are focused on the inner work and but enabling people to connect that inner experience to research and work that's been done 
by others as well, um, so that they actually have an understanding of their own journey and become conscious of path that they're taking. So yeah, I mean, if you look at the the program, some of them have, most of them have an in-person component to them for the coursework. And then of course, when you do your thesis or dissertation, that's very much a, a solo journey supported by your major advisor, of course, and potentially, you know, the community of other students who are working on similar topics. But we, the other the other way we, we do that is by insisting, as I said earlier, that the subjective reflection is a core part of the thesis or dissertation and the research approach that they take, you know, honours that. I mean, it's crazy that our, our dean of students, our dean of graduate studies, for example, Georgie Sabo, who got her degree with commendation from the Sorbonne, wasn't even allowed to start a sentence with I. You know, it all had to be objective. And yet, for I don't know how many decades, quantum science has been showing us there is no such thing. You know, the, the observer affects the observed, that the researcher impacts what they're researching. Um, and yet, traditional academia seems to have taken a long time and hasn't even yet caught up with that idea and the implications of it, which is the role of the subjective in um in our research and in and in our writing so that's another way you know is is it's part of the criteria quite simply to make that explicit in your um academic work yeah i i guess the other concept that pops up again as we're talking about these the idea of a counselor centered school what we might call progressive education in some ways that idea of holistic or that idea of regaining yourself as a whole as a student which in school traditionally you are there's so much of yourself cut off from this but the idea that in the kind of models that you're not only in the content but also in the actual way that the course is structured you're expected to bring your whole self to this is there something else that's driving that that with that need for wholeness that and maybe without pointing fingers at other educational establishments, how could we maybe bring more of that into our uh, education world? Um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, Brendan, you know, the bringing the whole student and the whole of yourself. I mean, why should we not be able to bring our whole self anywhere in life, and uh, particularly in the education sector? But there's, I guess, the motivation for that might not be such a, just such a traditional kind of postmodern, because we believe in you know, the importance of people developing their own inner sensitivity and things. I'd say it's more from a perspective of because we know if we're going to be able to show up and make a positive contribution in the world, then we have to bring our whole person to that work. And the reason we created such a mess is because we've only brought half of our person, namely our left brain <laughs> instead of our right brain, if we want to frame it like that, or have come up with, uh, you know, ways of organizing and developing our products, running our economy that's all come out of a place of separation because we've grounded it in purely the rational mind um, and denied the existence of, say, a more intuitive or natural intelligence that comes more from a place of wholeness. So so it's um, it's not just for the glorification, let's say, of the inner work. It's because we know that for this transition um, that we're in, if we're going to do, you know, come through this with any grace at all, <laughs> then uh, we have to bring, people have to bring their whole person to it. In terms of how, you know, how other institutions bring that in, it's all about how they justify it, I think. So when I do, you know, I work through, through Ubiquity also with, for example, through the World Bank and their global financing facility with ministers of health and the top level civil servants and stakeholders in the country. And I don't use the same language that I would use, um, let's say, in a, in a kind of Ubiquity program directly. 
Um, but they understand very clearly that things are moving so fast and are so complex that for you to keep standing as a leader, you have to develop some inner capacity to hold your center in the, at the center of the storm, really, in the, in the eye of the storm. And so then I can talk about, you know, simple mindfulness things. Or I, one of the 12 principles I talk about is letting go, you know, and, and everybody really recognizes the letting go of stuff that doesn't work anymore. And they all re- really recognize that, but they're kind of, wow, you know, to have that named as a, as a leadership principle is really powerful because we all recognize we need to let go of stuff, um, but it's not what you're trained in, right? <laughs> and there's a kind of institutional letting go, but there's an individual letting go as well. Um, so it's about finding the, the context and the, and the story, I think, that helps people to justify it in a way, whether it's stress reduction. I mean, sure, you know, it's biggest biggest cause of, of illness and, you know, mental illness. So to be able to um, say, well, there are certain practices you can do that reduce stress and not make it all kind of uh, woo-woo, as it were, but just very grounded, simple practices, then I think that that can help. And, and soft skills has been the language, I guess, that has grown up around some of these some of these areas that maybe makes it a little more palatable for the for the Western mind. But it's employers saying that we need people now trained in these soft skills because they're the transferable skills. You know, they're and what we know is that those are the inequalities that you take with you wherever you go and that influence how well you relate with your colleagues, how productive you are, how creative you are, how effective you are at communicating, and those kind of things. And particularly in the uh, you know, more technical industries, the employers are saying, look, don't try to train people in the technical side of it, because by the time they get to us, it'll all have changed anyway. And we're going to have to train them anyway, train them in the core human skills so that when they come to us, they can be a good, effective employee and work with others well. And we'll train them in all the, you know, in all the details, because it's very hard to do that two years you know, before you go into a job when it's all changed. So um, I think it's possible uh, you know, it obviously depends on the faculty and their sense of comfort with doing more inner, inner work because it means they have to kind of be comfortable with it themselves, um, which is not always the case. And I think that whole paradigm of of challenging objectivity and saying that, you know, the subjective actually influences the objective, well, that's kind of puts a lot of people's careers on the line uh, as well, particularly in the kind of in the science science world, whereas we are demonstrating that you know consciousness now does actually affect scientific devices. So I think that's where it gets scary for in education. When we, you know, if we, you know, my school is definitely got limits of progressive kind of and, and critical thinking. And when we're talking about inquiry learning, which is I, I guess still stemming from scientific rationalism, we're okay. We're on solid ground, and then more and more subjectivity gets comes into the key, and it's like now we don't know where we're going or how we could assess whether this is working. It it gets into some really scary territories, and um, you talked about trust and how a master's and PhD adds that kind of validity to these ideas. That that is um, kind of intersection of some really knotty problems for society of. Yeah, how we're validating knowledge and how we're making our schools meaningful, both to the individual, but to the community. Yeah, I'm wondering, Peter, there's probably no typical journey that a student would have through their ubiquity experience. But what might, you know, from the beginning to end of that process look like in terms of attaining a master's or a PhD through the university, in terms of 
support offered by the institution in terms of the kind of relationships or in-person events you mentioned, what might a relatively typical journey look like through Ubiquity? Well, you know, I went on that journey myself when it was Wisdom University. Um, And I'd say there's two kind of pathways. One is our in-house program, so our Wisdom Studies programs, and the other is more the partner programs. Um, If we take our in-house, then basically about half, what we try to do is blend the US and the European approaches. So normally in the European approach, it's nearly all research-based. And in the US approach, it's nearly all taught as courses. So we have about 50% of credits are through coursework and 50% is for your thesis or dissertation. Um, so you'd, you'd, you'd start with, and what we recommend is this first course called the Creative Journey to Dissertation, um, which is uh, gives you the understanding of what's required in terms of academic writing, but more importantly, looks at the, the very human process we go through when we're trying to write and produce something. You know, what happens when we get stuck, uh, our doubts, our, you know, all of that kind of thing. Um, and you already share at that point some thoughts you have about the direction you want to your research to take. Um, and the students share that with each other. And that from the beginning is very rich because you get feedback from others about your topic and it helps you to refine it. And the reason we do that at the beginning is because then you have your coursework in front of you. But you've got in mind the questions you need to be asking as you're thinking about you know, how are you going to take what you're learning in your courses into your thesis or dissertation writing? And at that point, you know, it's the, the coursework is very personalized. So it's really, we have a selection of courses on our platform. Um, we have a selection of partner courses. So we always have on our calendar courses being offered by our partners. Um, and people can go off and just find a course that, that they like somewhere and bring it in as what we call independent study for credits once it's been approved um, by the Dean of Graduate Studies. So what we don't do is we don't, we have a few core courses, so like the Chartres experience, uh, like the Creative Journey for Dissertation and Great Books, which is they they look at, um, I think it's one book every two months and go through, you know, one of, you know, one of the greats from the wisdom traditions more, but it can be from uh, you know, more, a more modern perspective as well. And after once they've kind of completed the core courses, it's up to them which other courses they take, either from our from our offering, from the partner offerings, or from one they, they find out there in the world. What they have to do at the end of every course is to write a post paper on their reflections. Uh, about the course and the insights they've gained from it all of that following the kind of academic protocols as it were and you know the way you have to reference things you can't just show up with an opinion without backing it up somehow which is is good for the discipline as I said earlier particularly in this world of so much kind of stuff floating around in social media and un, un, ungrounded opinions about things and people having a feeling they can just say anything without actually backing it up somehow yeah, so the journey is then, you know, you do, you've do you got your core courses, you've got a selection of courses you can choose from, be they in person or be they online. Um, some are self-paced, uh, some are webinar-based, but really you personalize your own learning journey in terms of the course content. And as during that process, as you get clearer on the topic you want to explore, and this really depends on the student at what stage they do that, you look for your major advisor. And the major advisor is a really important relationship because they're the person who who guide you through the thesis or dissertation process. 
And we have a number of recommended major advisors, but they can also go out and find somebody themselves if they want, as long as they've got the appropriate qualification. So if you know they need to have a master's, if they're um, if they're ma- being a major advisor for the master's program, they need to have a PhD. If they're um, supporting a PhD program, often what people will do is as the, the the post papers that they've written for their courses will start to kind of make up the content potentially or bits of the content for their thesis or dissertation. And then at some point, you've got all the credits you need, having taken your coursework, and you embark on the writing uh, process. And again, we're very flexible with that. I mean, a lot of universities charge students per year that you're at the university. Um, there for us, it's just a one-off payment, essentially. Uh, you know what the cost is going to be, and you can take as long as you like. For the Wisdom Studies program, you know, you pay as you go. So you pay for your course and your credits each time you take the course. Uh, you pay um, when we need to um, employ your major advisor so that we can you know, pay them a bit up front. And then you pay at the end before you submit your um, your dissertation or your thesis. So that also enables people to pace it financially. With the partner degrees, obviously, the partner runs the content side. They run the courses. Um, and those are quite different, whether they're online or in person, you know, varies. Uh, one of the psychedelics programs, you know, has a couple of trips down to Mexico, uh, for example, in person. And I, But I think the Groff program, for example, is nearly all online. So it, it varies on the, our partner. What we look at is the quality of the program and the and quantity of the program as well. Is there enough engagement time to be able to award a certain amount of credits, etc.? Once they've completed the partner program, they then bring their certificate from the partner into Ubiquity. And they don't have to, of course, they can just stay with a certificate from the partner if they want. But if they want to get the master's or PhD, they bring that in. That counts as their course credits. And so the other half of their credits, they then go on to do their thesis or dissertation um, at Ubiquity. On that side, they pay, they pay the partner for their program whatever the partner's charging for it, and they come to Ubiquity and they pay in often in some people will pay up front or they pay in three installments, let's say, over the time they come in. So yeah, I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's personalized when they do their wisdom studies program with us. Um, they can choose the courses, but if you take it to another scale, what we're doing is kind of personalizing the whole degree offering by saying, well, there are great organizations out there doing fantastic learning brilliant content that could definitely be graduate quality um and why don't we just allow people to get a degree on the back of those so rather than us feel we have to control and come up with all of the content uh, for the programs we go out and find the partners who already have amazing content that's aligned obviously with our values and mission and uh, and just continually add those i think we have about 18 degree programs or something now on the platform most of which are now partner partner degrees so it's trying to build a whole new ecology of transformational higher education um honoring you know the the, the learning that's out there because there's no space in a lot of the traditional higher education to be able to do this kind of work which is actually the work that we think is most needed in the world but as we know when you've got an incumbent institution particularly one that's government controlled like healthcare or education then it's the slowest moving and really doesn't know how to deal with um you know rapid changes and particularly non-linear change in a societal uh, context i mean i've spoken here in the netherlands to universities you know with full of the stuff and stuff about the future of education they come to ask me to talk about the future okay so i talk about the future of education where i see it going what we're doing at ubiquity they're all kind of nodding, 
but they can't work out how to go from where they are as an institution at the moment to where they see they need to be. It's just, you know, they kind of paralyze. They just, well, you've got, you've got faculty who are, uh, who are, you know, paid full time. Um, but the future I think is going to be students will pull content from many different places. Why should you have to go to one university and follow the program that they prescribe when let's say you could be taking the program from the best economics lecturer at Stanford online produced really nicely in a way that you know you can go back and look at it again so why should you have to sit through a lecture of some guy who's been teaching it for 20 years at your local university and is really not inspiring at all so what's going to happen to the university campus you know well to try and answer your question I suppose (laughs) at the end of it I get a diploma certifying my degree with that institution's name on it and that's still been a a currency or to go back to this idea of a sense of trust or kind of like a guarantee to say, no, no, this institution verifies this person has put in the time, done the work, proven their achievement. What I loved you, what I loved in what you said there, Peter, was, you know, why why does the institution need to be the one providing all the content and overseeing this? Why can't we decentralize this and gather from all the greatest things? We've spoken to other institutions that have attempted to do something like this, but what really separates ubiquity, in my opinion, is you've found a way to do the accreditation process that when you leave, it's not just a certificate from us saying this is valuable, but rather you've actually found ways to have these degrees accredited, which many other institutions have not been able to do. And I think this is a crucial piece for this counselor, progressive, green approach to education moving forward that what's happening within the courses themselves do translate with some kind of verifiable um, trust or documentation or yeah, just standardized level of quality. So just curious if you could walk us through a little bit about why you decided it was necessary to to become an accredited institution and, and how you did that. Yeah, well, um, um, just on that, on the first thing that you said, it's really what the Global Accreditation Council, which is this initiative we set up with a number of other organizations, is doing, is enabling learners to get um, credits from any of the Global Accreditation Council member organizations and bundle them together into a degree. Um, that degree, of course, would have to be awarded by one of the university members of the GAC, Um um, but content could be taken from any of the partners because they've all gone through the same quality assurance process and know that they can trust the quality of the learning program from each of the members. So, um, but yeah, that journey was an interesting one because Wisdom University was licensed in California by the BPPE. And then they have a um, an accreditation body called WASC, it was in California, but you don't have to be accredited to um, to run degree programs. You just have to be licensed. But the, the important thing is the distinction between licensing and accreditation. Licensing is a license to operate, basically. But people can't, for example, get grants or use them for um, folks who've been in the military and stuff. You know, they, they get credits to be able to. Those kind of things are not possible if you're not accredited. And that's very expensive and very bureaucratic, all of it is. So, but we were in... Yeah, around, I guess it's 2012, 2013, as we were developing the ubiquity concept, we put it together and went back to the licensing body, which with this combination of uh, knowledge-based learning, personal development and impact projects, that was the kind of core of the curricular design. And they said, no, you can't do that. So, and then they also said, 
back in 2013. And by the way, online learning doesn't have a future. So, you know, that was interesting <laughs> looking back. So uh, we were kind of, well, we have to make a decision. Either we compromise what we feel the world needs, what employers are saying is needed and what students are saying they want to fit into this archaic um, uh, accreditation uh, system that's that's basically state and government controlled, or we bail out of that system and do what we know needs to be done and build some other kind of trust system uh, around it. Because if you think about it, what is accreditation for? What should it be for? I'd say, I mean, what it's really for is for the government to be able to control the education sector um, so that they keep, you know, keep things going the way they want them to be going. But what it should be for is enabling quality, making sure there's a quality assurance and making sure there's a kind of exchangeability and recognition of the credentials. <clears throat> right. That's what it really should be. Yeah. for. So we encountered a number of other organizations who were doing really great work and struggling with the same thing. Like we know what we need to do but we're getting held back in our innovation by the accreditation bodies um, in whatever country it was. And so with a number of them, we started this thing called the Global Accreditation Council, which if people Google, they need to do go globalaccreditationcouncil.org because there is a .com that's a bit of a cowboy outfit. Um, that's not what, what we're trying to do. So globalaccreditationcouncil.org. And um, we have two kind of phases to the accreditation process. One is an impact assessment. So we're looking for learning institutions who are trying to make a positive difference in the world and who recognize the importance of the inner development as part of that. And if they pass that, then there is a quality uh, assurance phase, which is using scorecards, quality scorecards from a third-party provider that is independent to the GAC and the member organizations. So quality scorecards focused on the online learning experience, the administration of those programs, as well as the pedagogy around them. And so that has basically enabled us to, to try to create what's really a, a global quality assurance body um, for, for learning and higher education. Um, with this values alignment of probably, you know, you were talking about your council-led organizations with those kind of values and those kind of approaches. It's been, you know, we've got maybe 15 members or so at the moment, and they people keep finding us. We've not done any big recruitment campaign or anything yet because we're still really working out how we're going to run it. It's run as a member organization. It's based in The Hague which is, you know, as a city uh, for international institutions here in the Netherlands. And the interesting piece that we're, well, firstly, the ability to be able to kind of create a currency of credit across the member organizations so people could do different programs um, and, co and collect credits from across the member organizations. Um, and in fact, there's one of our, one of our uh, guys on the supervisory board um, has come up with this idea for a global degree that is, how do we make sure that that um, degrees from around the world can have recognition parity? Because now, if you got, you know, you're trained, let's say, as an an MD in in India, and you move to the US, you know, it's not recognised at all. You have to start all over again, and that's the same for many programs in different contexts. And his work has been um, really um, picked up by UNESCO and had millions of hits on this article. Um, and so, you know, looking at at how do you translate different learning experiences from different places and enable people to get recognized credits for those as part of the work? Um, I think 
the most exciting piece of the puzzle is we're starting to build a community of employers, I call conscious employers, who are saying we will recognize um, credentials from GAC member organizations and treat their graduates in the same way as we treat a graduate from any other university. So what that does is that shortcuts the whole um, antiquated accreditation system because you'd make a direct link between the learner, the learning institution and the employers, right? Ultimately, if an employer says we'll accept the credential, then, you know, who cares what the state says, right? <laughs> and so um, the issue does still uh, remain, though, is does a credential from a GAC member get accepted by a university in the mainstream? Um, and, and that's where you start to bump up against the old accreditation system. No, no, no university in the world is actually obliged to accept a degree from any other university. There's no law stipulating you have to. So if you're applying for a master's or a PhD somewhere, they can still you know, re reject, refuse you, which means that they can accept. They can choose where they want to take graduate students from, um, which means that somebody with a degree from one of the GAC member organizations, such as Ubiquity, can go to one of these universities, show them what they've studied, present them with their dissertation, show who was on their oral exam board, you know, which is people from uh, Harvard, Cambridge, Sorbonne. So the, the educational quality is guaranteed. It's just the institutions aren't part of the formal accreditation system. We've only had, what I always say to people actually is, look, if you're, if you're wanting to get your degree to go into a state-controlled sector like health or like education, then I wouldn't recommend a ubiquity degree because we can't guarantee they'll accept it. Mm. You have to be completely honest and transparent about that. It's just we're in this transition, right, from the old to the new, and you got the old new kind of operating here and the old operating there, and there, you know, there's a lot of protectionism going on still in the old old uh, education system as the state realizes it's all falling apart, but is desperately trying to control, um, still control the education system. So. Um, you know, that's what we're doing with the GAC. And it's, um, we actually heard, I probably shouldn't name him, but a guy used to be director of WASC in California, who uh, said to us, he thinks the whole accreditation system is crumbling, and that what we're doing with the GAC is the future. But of course, you know, you're still in the transition. So some people won't feel comfortable with it, because it's not according to the book. But at the same time, most people who come to a GAC member organization are already thinking differently, you know, have a different set of values and not interested in getting a job in the old world or interested in getting a job in the new world. And, and employers who are in that sector are actually likely to be a lot more positive about a degree from Ubiquity or any other GAC member than one from the mainstream. Because a lot of employers are now saying, uh, we don't actually think a degree has credit anymore, you know, because the edu uh, mainstream education system is so backward and behind. In And, and yet the employment, of course, in the business world has to move fast to keep up with things um, and are finding that people aren't coming out really equipped. And on top of that, they're coming out with a massive debt, you know, and they're kind of enslaved to the <laughs> to the employment system. So it's a, a really negative cycle that people then get into because they have to earn money to pay back that debt in the in the old system. And it, it's kind of. Yeah. So uh, so we try to keep it as affordable as possible. I mean, a ubiquity. um uh, a graduate uh, PhD is around $18,000, which if you know anything about the cost of a PhD, normally is radically affordable. And a, um, I think the master's, if you do the wisdom master's, I think $6,000, even $6,000. 
and people can pay it you know as they go and they know mm -hmm. that's the fixed amount it's not going to keep increasing or anything um they can be working part-time and paying that as they go so so we're trying to you know do what we can to meet all the various needs while doing something that's really meaningful and also putting a stake in the ground and saying no we're not going to compromise the quality of what we feel needs to be done um because of the 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 mindset of an old system that's dead anyway but just hasn't been buried so it changes very slow in education and you're proposing some radical ideas about restructuring we we did a couple of episodes on illich's de-schooling society and you know a lot of what you're talking about now is is obviously parallels with some of those things put it on this my idea, somewhere absolute classic 50 years old and still 50 years ahead of its time and, and this is the first thing and it was about four, four or five years ago when i when i came across ubiquity first i think and this idea that first struck me was that you can get credits from this huge range of universities and 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 places and this idea that they don't necessarily have to be with one of your partner schools they can come in from somewhere else is revolutionary how how uh, you did talk about it a little bit but how do you even go about working out whether those courses are valid and then how to support people to integrate that into their studies yeah well, well not only do we allow people to bring credits in from other universities but we allow people to bring credits in from life experience but let me deal with the university bit first i mean we we're very kind of simple about that if they have completed a certain amount amount of credits at an existing university, then we'll accept those credits. I mean, you know, they've. I mean, you know, if they if they pass the test of the old system, then you know, fair enough. As long as you know, as long as the content is obviously aligned with mm -hmm. what we're wanting uh, wanting to offer or what they're wanting to go and study. And and by the way, a lot of people do. You know, they start in the in the mainstream. Maybe they get their bachelor's. In the, we don't offer a bachelor's program, but they get their bachelor's somewhere in the mainstream, and then they start a master's program. They're kind of, my God, this is you know such a waste of time that they kind of bail out they often don't know there's an alternative but when they find an alternative then they say can i bring my credits in and we're yeah of course you know if you've and and often it's in maybe more the sustainability um side of things so yeah when we you know we don't make that a problem at all the interesting one is though <clears throat> particularly for the partner programs people who say don't have a bachelor's degree but want to come on and do a master's degree and then you have to ask yourself what does a, ba a bachelor's degree really um, say about somebody and their capacity? Because you have to look for what's the underlying competence that that piece of paper or that diploma is giving you some assurance on. And obviously, there's a content side of it, but we're not so interested in the content side. We're interested in their ability to, to think, you know, their ability to work academically with doing proper research or whatever on a particular topic. And and that is not something you have to develop in a university. I mean, you can develop that through your work experience, through the non-formal learning sector, many, many different places where you can develop what one could say is like a foundational bachelor's level competence. And so um, should people want to come and do a master's degree and not have a formal bachelor's degree, we ask them, first of all, they have to write a letter explaining why they think they have a bachelor's level competence and what their understanding of it is, and um, send us a CV with their employment track record and any other non-formal learning or any other training that they've done that we could recognize as being, okay, well, you know, based on what we've seen, and if necessary, we can follow up a reference um, you know, you definitely have bachelor's level competence because that's what it's about, not bachelor's level piece of paper. 
but bachelor's level competence. And if you've got that level of competence, then we'll provide that recognition to you and enable you to go on and do a master's a master's degree. Yeah. And and same for somebody. Well, actually, we actually have a combined MA PhD program as well, um, in which they have to only write, they just write their um, PhD dissertation, but they have to do a, a number of extra master's level classes um, on top of that. They just get one diploma, then they get an MA PhD diploma, whereas if you did them separately, you get two diplomas. But you know, who cares about the bit of paper, really? If we if we look back, myself and Robert are primary school teachers essentially. But if you look back, what do our primary and middle school and high schools need to do to make the amount of people that are ready to move into your style of uh, tertiary education and on a wider scale? just make a world full of people who are, are more able to um, have that inner that inner consciousness and uh, those 21st century skills. What, what would you like to see happen? Well, it sounds to me like that's the subject of our next uh, call, right? Where we're going to talk about yeah. the alternative secondary education system that we've developed over here. But, you know, very fundamentally, it's stop treating people as consumers kids as consumers and have them as make them be kind of co-creators you know treat them like you said at the beginning as full human beings at the moment it's like take all this content you know take it in and then let's try to get you ready to regurgitate it at the at the right time so you pass your exam i mean that's you know that's still very much an industrial model of like treating them like you know a sausage factory basically and uh, and the checks all along the way your grades are you know how well how good are you at remembering stuff and regurgitating it you know, which is really pretty useless, given that you know we now have access to all the information that we want. I mean, AI could write most of our essays for us that are all focused on kind of content and knowledge. So it's more about well, what's the what's the added value of the human in that, which is our our inner qualities, the capacity for our critical thinking to to have an opinion that we can back up on things, to be able to create r- healthy relationships with each other and work constructively uh, in the world. And so again, it shifts the attention back to the interior qualities rather than pure knowledge-based learning. So I think that's the foundation uh, in terms of my answer. But, you know, I think we should go into more details when I talk about some of the innovations that are happening over here in that sector. Indeed. The two of you are Segway kings. That was excellent. Primed for the next episode. Peter, thank you so much. We often talk about the pioneers and the hackers. So the hackers being those who are bringing this mindset and doing their best they can within the conventional or old school systems. But we really appreciate pioneers like you going out and creating the new vision for the future and implementing these new approaches and and finding your ways around the existing structures and at the same time creating something new. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. Well, you know, it's always Buckminster Fuller's quote inspires me where he says, don't try to change the old system, but build a new one that makes the old one obsolete. So that's the mission. Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.